listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Good morning. Be with you. Uh, for those of you who don't know me or weren't here at the beginning of the gathering, my name's Cole. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is uh, really good to be with you this morning, um, and it's an honor to be able to preach the truth from God's Word as we continue Uh, looking at the book of Jonah and the story of Jonah. Um, Last week, we were introduced to this book and and to our main character, Jonah, um, who is a a troubled prophet. Uh, God called Jonah to go to a foreign city called Nineveh, uh, which was filled with enemies of God's people. And and Jonah was called to, to call the Ninevites to repentance and warn them of God's coming judgment. And Jonah didn't want to go. Um, And so he uh, ran in the opposite direction, going down geographically and metaphorically, as Nick explained to us last week. Jonah was running away from God's face and and God's calling and and headed toward a land full of comforts called Tarshish. And and he went down to the port city. He bought a ticket to go to Tarshish, this place full of comfort and wealth. And, And I think best of all for Jonah, Tarshish was his far from Nineveh as he could imagine. And so he went below the ship deck to go to sleep. Uh, He was stowed away, hiding from God's presence. And and as you might expect, even if you're not familiar with the Bible, just familiar with literature, um, God was still present there with him. Um, The Lord made the seas to rage, and the boat was was pitching and rolling on the seas, and and it was in danger of sinking. And and so these pagan sailors, they're they're desperate. They're crying out to their their gods who are impotent. They're throwing things overboard, and then they go down below the ship deck, and they they find Jonah asleep, and they're saying, maybe you should cry out to your God. We we don't really know much about him, but but let's let's give that a go. And, And Jonah's like, well, actually, I'm the reason the seas are raging, because my God is the God of everything, and I made him mad, and so why don't you throw me overboard? And reluctantly, the sailors agreed to do this, and and they they saw the power of of the God of the Bible, the God of heaven and earth. They repented. They turned toward him. They made vows to him. By all accounts, these sailors became followers of Yahweh, and yet Jonah was, was was cast into the seas. Uh, he, he'd reached the end of his rope. He'd fled from God's face. He rejected God's commandments, God's call, and now he was being justly condemned by God. And it is easy for us, especially those of us who are Christians in the room, especially those of us who are pretty good, obedient Christians in the room, to just disdain Jonah. Right? What a fool, we might say to ourselves. Right? How many of you I- encountered the, the story of Jonah and just thought, well, you know, if God's... God came to me and spoke to me and called me to do something. I would listen, right? Anybody feel that way? Who's got their Bible in the room? Anybody have a Bible with them? Just want to hold it up? Do you listen? I mean, God has spoken to you probably more clearly even than he spoke to Jonah and his word. But, but do you listen? Like, have we obeyed him at every turn? Or, or have we run from him? Uh, I, I think 
We can learn a lot from Jonah because I think if we're honest, all of us are a bit like Jonah. We have a tendency to act like Jonah. God's spoken to us, but we haven't obeyed him. At times we run from him. At times we we hide from his voice and from his commandments. Have you ever sought comfort or security or leisure apart from God? I have. I know I've done this. In fact, when I was in in high school, um, I... I, I knew the Lord, I, I had been following the Lord, and I decided uh, that it would probably be a good idea to see what it was like to just not follow Him, to just run away from Him, um, to run away from His ple- face. I, I sought the pleasures of Tarshish that, that Jonah sought in a, in a less exotic place called Valley Mills, Texas, and, and I, I didn't end up near physical death like Jonah, but I did end up surrounded by the waters of self-doubt, spiritual misery, and the weeds of worldliness wrapped around my head like they, they were wrapped around Jonah's head. And, and many of you in the room, if you've been following the Lord for any amount of time, at, at one point or another have run from Him. Maybe some of you have, have never followed Him. You've just been running from Him from, from day one. Uh, to, and you felt the weighty wages of your sin coming to bear on your life. You felt the consequences of your rebellion, the, the lack of fulfillment in your flight. And, and so we're called to let Jonah be a warning to us, but also to be a comfort to us. There is good news in the book of Jonah. Um, but what we're learning in Jonah as, as he's, falling below the waves, is that the Lord will exact severe discipline upon those whom He has called. He he will exact severe discipline upon those whom He has called. And hear this, so that the violence of God's mercy might save them from the abyss. There's a violence at times in the mercy of God. And here, Jonah's experience it. He ran from God's voice, ran from God's presence, ran from God's face, and yet in the deep we see him crying out this beautiful prayer. And, and the Lord has saved him. I, I would ask you, in times when you have felt surrounded by the waters, what have you done? Or, or maybe that day has not yet come, what will you do? Let's pray, and then let's jump in a little bit more. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of your scriptures. We thank you for the ways that, that you teach us through, through so many different ways, through, through clarity of commandments, through the beauty of poetry, through, through, through the helpfulness of narrative, that in all of these things you reveal yourself to us and you reveal ourselves to us. I pray this morning as we approach your word that we would do so humbly, and that you would humble us at the weight of our need for you, and that we would be transformed to those who trust you more, who follow you more faithfully, who delight in you more fully. I pray that if there is a man or a woman or a child in this room who is yet to see the fullness of your grace, that you would reveal to them the depths of your grace for them, that they would turn from from, from their sin and trust in you this morning. And I pray for those of us in the room maybe who are in a season of of darkness, feel surrounded by the waters that you'd minister to us, for those who are are maybe feeling like they're walking in in the fullness of of your blessing at the moment, that you would prepare their hearts for a a time in which that might not be true and that you you would fasten us to yourself through your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So if, if the book of Jonah were a movie, the scene 
from chapter 1 would have ended with Jonah sinking into the water, right? Just surrounded by increasingly darker blues and greens, twisted up in the seaweed, struggling for breath. And then we read verse 17 of chapter 1, which happens to be one of my favorite transitional statements in the history of literature. It says, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Like, that's, that's good, right? Like, this is where we lean in. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. So, at the beginning of chapter 1, God appointed Jonah. He appointed Jonah to rise up and to go preach repentance to Nineveh, whose evil had risen up to the Lord. And instead of rising up to the call of God, Jonah went down into the depths of his rebellion and sin. He went down to Joppa to go down to Tarshish. He went down into the ship deck. And his sin rose up to the Lord. And the Lord caused the sailors to rise up to preach the word to Jonah. And again, Jonah goes down into his sin, reaching the pinnacle of sinful rebellion, both literally and metaphorically, as he is in certain death in the abyss. And now, in the midst of this despair and hopeless time, God has appointed a great fish to rise up in the water column, to swallow Jonah to give him salvation. And so like Noah and Moses and the Israelites before him, Jonah finds himself being saved through the waters of judgment by the mercy of God. And in Jonah 2, God is beginning to teach us a lot through this main character. He teaches us about his mercy. He teaches us about ourselves and about all of mankind. Through Jonah, we learn about Christ. And through Jonah, we learn actually about Nineveh, this, this city that, that all we know is that they're wayward and that they're the enemies of God. Nineveh was full of evil. They were enemies of Jonah. They hated the people whom God had chosen to love in the people of Israel. Nineveh deserved everything that was coming to them. Right? This is part of the reason Jonah wants nothing to do with them. Because they deserve everything that's coming to them. They were wayward and sinful and dismissive of the God of the Bible. They were arrogant and proud and violent. They wanted to, to, nothing to do with God, His love, or His law. And so when Jonah was called to preach the word to the people of Nineveh, he ran. He didn't want to do it. And, and we're not exactly sure why. Maybe Jonah ran out of fear. That, that, he would, that he would fail in his calling, that he would end up killed by the people of Nineveh. Maybe he ran out of a nationalistic pride, like not wanting anything to do with these people who hated his people. Maybe he ran out of hatred for the Ninevites and their sin and, and wanting the judgment of God to come upon them because they deserved it. And yet, in his running, Jonah became everything he hated about Nineveh. Let's learn from Jonah here. In his running, he became everything he hated about Nineveh. Jonah became one who was far from God, like the Ninevites. He became one who rejected God's decrees and hated those whom God loved. 
Nineveh was destined for destruction and for judgment, and now Jonah is in the very waters of judgment, surrounded by the breathless deep. Nineveh required God's intervention so that they might reckon with him and repent, and now Jonah has been placed in the belly of a fish in the depths of a sea so that he might reckon with God and with his own sin. Jonah is Nineveh become. And this, this great fish is ironically now the prophet of God who is saving him from the fullness of God's punishment. Right? Like a prophet, the mouth of the great fish has become a beacon of hope and a cry for repentance to a man who has made a mess of his life. And furthermore, the fish becomes like a priest who mediates this relationship between sinful Jonah and the holy God of heaven. Hear how Jonah chapter 2 starts. It says, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. The author of Jonah is making it clear that the, the belly of the fish is mediating this conversation between Jonah and God, that there's a priestly role to take place here. It goes on and, and Jonah begins his prayer. He says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Hear that. Jonah's in distress, and God answered him. Like, that could just be the sermon. When you are in distress and you call out to God, he will answer you. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. And then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. I love, I love the words of Jonah here. He's, he, he's taking all that has happened in his life, things that have been uh, natural disaster. He's taken the actions of the sailors and, and his own actions, and he's realized that actually God has sovereignly orchestrated all of these things, that these waves are God's waves, that him being cast into the sea was God's hand, not the sailor casting him into the sea, that all of this was God, and he says, I am driven away from your sight. Right? He was running from God, but now he feels that he's been driven away from God's sight. And yet there's hope. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. So Jonah's praying from the belly of the fish. And we might expect a prayer of deep contrition and repentance. And we don't really get that. We don't necessarily know that that doesn't mean Jonah wasn't repentant. But that's not in this prayer. We see a man who's full of thanksgiving for the salvation he's received that God has saved him, and he's, he's glad, and he's reflecting on it. He's reflecting on the reality that he cried out to God in the distress of drowning, and God heard him. Jonah was sinking into the depths of the sea, headed toward Sheol, the place of the dead. And, and for those of you who are, are not familiar with the word Sheol, in the Old Testament, this is what the, the Israelite people reckoned the place of the dead to be. And so as, as New Covenant Christians with the things that have been revealed through Christ, this is what we often call the intermediate state, like where our souls go when we die prior to the consummation of the new heavens and the new earth and the resurrected body and all of this. So the, the Jews didn't have that full picture of the afterlife, but they just reckoned that, that they go to this place called Sheol, which was believed to be below the earth, below the depths of the earth, and, and where the gates were in the depths of the sea. 
which is this symbolic way of understanding it as far from the life and majesty of God as possible. Now, Sheol is not always reckoned to be this place of evil. There's kind of a moral neutrality to it, um, but this is where Jonah reckons that he's going, the place of the dead. Um, and, And in fact, he reckoned himself to to already be there at the moment of God's deliverance. That, that he's looking around, he's struggling for breath, his body is dying, all he sees is, is darkness and agony and fear, and he says, this is Sheol, right? And God delivers him from it. This, I love the structure of this prayer. Uh, it's a poem, and and. Often what we see in biblical literature, uh, both in poems and narrative, is that there's the use of this literary structure called a chiasm, where at the, the front end and the back end of a portion of text, there will be uh, something that echoes each other. And so the beginning and the end of this prayer are Jonah talking about God hearing his voice and saving him. And, and so then there's, there's echoing like structure all the way, to the middle portion, and this is the middle portion, which is the center of the text, both, both in terms of content and just in terms of how it's structured. It says, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land, which is Sheol, whose bars closed upon me forever. So Paul says in Romans, that the wages of sin is death. And here Jonah is learning that in reality, in the fullness of learning that, that there is a grave danger of running away from God. Because in the presence of God, formerly Jonah experienced safety and rest and joy. He had a purpose and he had a calling. He was a prophet of God to the people of God. He enjoyed the blessings of God. He enjoyed the presence of God and worship in the, in the temple. And now away from God, the consequences of sin and the fallen world are crushing, even deadly. Right? He says, the weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I love this line. There's a lot going on in this line. Um, See, if you read in Genesis, what you see is that our first father, Adam, ran from God's calling. He, He ran away from God. He ends up hiding from the presence of God behind the bushes, fearing that God would find him there. And then God finds him there, and God tells Adam some things. Namely, he curses the ground and the work that Adam will do. And he says that all of Adam's life, he will toil against the, the negative things in the ground, the, the thorns and the thistles. Right? We can infer the weeds. And that eventually, the ground from which Adam was created will consume him in death. And so Jonah is talking about the weeds being wrapped around his head as he is dying and he's identifying himself with Adam and Adam's rebellion, that the earth is now consuming him, that the weeds of his toil have finally wrapped their way around his head such that he will die. And like the, the literal seaweeds have become for Jonah more than that. The created order is swallowing him up as he joined in Adam's rebellion. And yet, in that moment, he cried out. 
He cried out in hope. He, he had gone as far as he could from the face of God, the God of heaven, the God who dwelled in the temple on the mountain in the holy city. And here's Jonah with the weeds of Adam's toil wrapped around his head at the roots of the mountain, right? Physically and metaphorically, as far from the blessedness of the presence of God as possible. And still Jonah cries out in hope. And God heard him. God heard him. Church, God hears us in the depths. He hears us in the depths. He hears us when we have run away from him and when we are in trouble. He hears us when we think we've gone too far, when we think we've sinned too much, when we think we've rebelled too completely, when we think we've lost hope too fully, when we think we've lost faith too utterly. God hears us. He hears us in the dark of night. He hears us in the depths of the sea, in the final labor of final dying breaths, in the exhaustion of grief, God hears you. In the pits of agony and depression, God hears you. In unrelenting fear, God hears you. And even in indefensible rebellion, where you have nothing to stand on but your own folly and shame, God hears you. See, when I had run from God, in, in my teenage years, as I mentioned earlier, I ended up alone one night in my backyard. And some of you know the story, but the pleasures of Tarshish to which I had fled, uh, they turned out to just be a mirage in a wasteland. I was full of sorrow. I had done things I planned on never doing. I had become someone I knew I wasn't created to be and didn't really like very much. I had hurt people that I had loved the most and the weeds were wrapping around my head. I wasn't physically in danger, but my spirit was on life support. And one of the things that I learned is just common wisdom, and that's that if you run away from people for long enough, eventually they'll stop following you and you'll be alone. If you just run from people for long enough, eventually they'll wear out, right? Even the the people that love you the most, even the people that are the most faithful, even the, the marathon runner will eventually stop. What I learned that night is that God is not like that. I had run from him, but he was there in my backyard. He was there. He had never left me. He never left Jonah. And if you belong to God through Christ, he will never leave you or forsake you. I know that because Jesus said so himself. He said, I will never leave you or forsake you. You can't escape him. And so we're invited instead to embrace him. See, that night for me, like Jonah in the belly of the fish, I learned about grace. God doesn't just hear us from the depths because he's infinite, right? That's like, that's math equation theology where we think like, okay, God is infinite, he's everywhere, and so even if we're in the depths, God's there. And like, sure, that's true, but that might be the what, but it's not the why. God hears us in the depths because he is willing to and because he has indeed gone to the depths with us and for us so that the depths won't swallow us up forever. 
so that even when the weeds are wrapped around our head, we can't see the surface of the ocean, we're, we're entering into the gates of Sheol, that if we call out to God, He will be there and hear us and rescue us. That's just the kind of God that the Bible teaches us about. See, Jonah had become the Nineveh that he despised. And he had experienced the discipline and the fear of God's judgment like Nineveh was meant to in his ministry. Jonah had become like Adam who fled from God and was consumed by the earth. But the question becomes, why did God save Jonah? Partially, we could say, well, I've I've read the book. He he, He saved Jonah because he wasn't through with him. Right? The people of Nineveh still needed to hear the word of God. And Jonah was the guy God picked to do that. And, and sure, that's true, but God could have raised up another prophet, probably a much better one, one who obeyed, one who was a lot more efficient in doing God's bidding, not one who was so moody and rebellious and cantankerous. Jonah didn't deserve to be saved. He deserved to die. Jonah knew that. That's why he asked the sailors to throw him overboard. He was well aware of what he deserved. Um, I wonder if if you've ever felt so low that that you would just resign yourself to God quitting on you and and ask people to to help you in in that reality. Um, Why did God come to me that night in my backyard? I mean, there's not a singular answer to this question but I can tell you it wasn't because I deserved it. I had run from God, and he would have been right in letting me go. Um, But he didn't. It's not in his character. It's not in his nature. And so maybe the better question is, why did God let Jonah run away in the first place? Right? Like, why why did God let me run away from him? In the first place, I mean, Jonah was a worshiper of God. He was a covenant child of God. He was a prophet of God to the people of God. He knew God. And similarly, I was, I was a believer in God. I was a worshiper of God. I had, I had committed myself to Christ and his church. I had been baptized into Christ and his death and resurrection. And so why didn't God just keep us from running? I mean, this is an age-old question, right? Why, why does God let his people sin against him? I mean, he could have. I mean, we've seen in Jonah too, he makes a whale into a prophet. Like, he could have kept me from being a rebellious teenager. Surely, it's within his power to do that. And there's a lot of ways to discuss this question, most of which have been nuanced debates over the last 2,000 years or, or more, really, since the Genesis story was, was part of God's people's language. I mean, this is an age-old question. But the, the important lesson in Jonah chapter 2 is not a systematic theology lesson. It's this, that God will allow us to make utter messes of our lives so that he can teach us that we need him and that his grace is more than an intellectual doctrine to which we assent. God will let you ruin everything in your life if it leads you to understanding that you need Him. If it rids you of a false sense of self-righteousness or self-security or deservedness of His grace. And you will be better for it. You will be better equipped for it. Jonah is going to end up in Nineveh later. And you know what he's going to know? Like in the depths of his soul that he would have only really known in his brain beforehand, 
he would go to Nineveh knowing that God could change them and that God can forgive them. We'll find out he still doesn't want that to happen, but he knows it can because it, it happened to him. I can look at any of you in the eye and you can tell me the, the worst things you've done, the darkest things you've walked in, and I can, say that I can tell you for sure there is grace for it. I have no doubt in my mind that there is forgiveness for your sins that there's redemption in all of your folly, that there's transformation even in all of your malformed character and, and misplaced identity. God does not want His children to believe in the depths of their hearts that He loves them because they're good enough. Or that He, he will stop loving them the moment they fail. God's love is made perfect in our sin. I mean, if, if you ask any Christian, what is the, the highest example of God's love for his people? It's the cross of Christ where Jesus is paying the penalty for all the sins of mankind. And so God's love is made perfect in our sin. His power is made perfect in our weakness. His glory is made to glow in, in an everlasting and inextinguishable luminescence in our folly. That's where God is made most glorious when He engages with our sin and our weakness and our folly. So, so brothers and sisters, if you've never really learned the truth about God's grace and that you actually need it, if you've never laid on your floor, on your belly, just begging that God would show you mercy, wondering how that could be possible, I warn you that the storm might be coming and the ship that you're hiding in might start to pitch and roll. Because God would much prefer that you suffer than that you miss it. He would much prefer that you experience the severity of His mercy so that you don't miss out on the overwhelming beauty of His grace. Because there's nothing more spiritually dangerous than a low-grade pride that keeps us from beholding the fullness of God's love, His grace, and His salvation. There's, and, and hear this, on the flip side, there's nothing more dangerous for Satan and his domain than people who have learned that there's nothing our God can't do, nobody our God can't save, and no sin our God won't forgive. Like Satan stands no chance against the people who know that. What will he tempt us with? What lies can he tell us when we know that there's fullness of grace, forgiveness, power, and mercy in the love of God through Christ? I asked earlier why God saved Jonah, and, and the answer is he did it for his glory, and he did it because of grace. Uh, what we've learned about Jonah is that Jonah is a prophet sent to a wayward people, and that then Jonah embodies the wayward people's sin in his own life. He makes it his own, and he bears the judgment that they deserve. Right? That's what's happening as he's sinking in the waters. But this is just a shadow of the things to come in Christ. See, the God-man Jesus came to earth to visit a wayward people with the truth about God. Like Nineveh, all of God's creatures and all of his people had sin that had risen up before God into his throne room and he couldn't stand it any longer. And so in love and in justice, God sent his only son Jesus to warn of the coming judgment of God. And Jesus became like all the sinful people he visited. He walked with them and talked with them. 
He was human, just like them. He still is. And he became them in full on the cross, where he who knew no sin became sin and, and experienced the wrath toward sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He was swallowed up by the earth and separated from the presence of God for three days and three nights. He was in the belly of the earth in the depths of Sheol. See, Jonah was saved from death as he was sinking, not because he deserved to be saved, but he was saved from death because God had planned already to die on his behalf. And I was saved from from God's abandonment because God had died to rescue me and cherish me forever. It had nothing to do with me, had everything to do with him. It it says at the end of our text today, and the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Jonah's emergence from the seas is is a type of resurrection. The word vomit there that's used, it's violent, it's gross, it's visceral. Um, It's a word of rejection, of casting out, of not belonging. Uh, It's a word that is actually used in the scriptures that the readers of Jonah would have been familiar with. It's used in Leviticus a number of times as God is telling his people about the promised land that he's giving them to belong in. And, And God warns them not to make the promised land unclean with their sin and their rebellion because if they make the promised land unclean, the land will vomit them out. It, it will reject them. The blessedness of God will reject them. And here, the author of Jonah is using the word vomit in a similar but equal and opposite sort of way. And, and really, we have to go to Jesus first to understand this. Jesus, in his perfection, his power, and his satisfying atonement of God's wrath towards sin on the cross... He became an unsuitable member of the grave. Just as the people of Israel were warned that they could be so unclean that God's blessing would vomit them out, Jesus was so clean that death vomited him out. He had no place there. Death utterly rejected our Lord and Savior. He was vomited out onto dry land into a new earth and a new creation. And so Jonah too is vomited out from the seas because he belongs to that sort of God. God had placed his covenant promises on Jonah such that he had no place in the abyss. He was rejected from judgment. The last words that Jonah prayed or that salvation belongs to the Lord. And if you believe, like Jonah, that salvation belongs to the Lord, you too will be rejected by the grips of hell, by the finality of death, by the torment of God's wrath and judgment. You will have no place there. Really, everyone in the room, whether or not you've trusted in Christ, I want to tell you that if you are united to God in Christ, if you acknowledge your deep need for the forgiveness of your sins and the power of God to redeem your lost soul, to to unite you to the God of heaven and earth, to make you alive to His beauty, if you proclaim that salvation belongs to God, you will be saved. That's good news. Somebody could say amen. Jonah's prayer 
knowing this, he, he had hope. We see this structurally in that he has forward-looking hope and he has a hope of remembrance. His forward-looking hope is this. He says, Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. So church, even in the valley of the shadow of death, we as God's people should fear no evil. Because we have confidence that we will ever look upon God in eternity, that surely we shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Surely, though, though the night is dark, the, the dawn is coming, new mercies each day forever and for always. There is a forward-looking hope where we belong to God and have the promises of eternity with Him forever in a land where there is no suffering, where there are no tears, where there's no more sin, where death is no more, where sin has been defeated. But Jonah also had the hope that comes from remembering. He says, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. So remember the Lord when you're surrounded by darkness. Remember the good news that Jesus Christ has come into the world to save sinners, even like you. Remember your baptism, where God saved you through the waters of judgment on the merits of Christ, just like he saved Jonah in that day. In a moment, we're going to come and eat at the table of the Lord, which is appropriate every week when we gather, but particularly in light of this idea of forward-looking hope and uh, and a hope of remembrance, because at the table we have this forward-looking hope of this eternal wedding feast where God's people will be united to Him forever in in joy and, and, and proclamation of His glory, and we'll get to feast with Him intimately and beautifully for all time, and that is our hope in, in the midst of darkness. And yet, we have the hope of remembrance. For when Jesus instituted the meal, he, he said, do this in remembrance of me. We remember the broken body of Jesus, which was crushed for our iniquity, and the shed blood of Jesus that was poured out for our forgiveness as an everlasting promise that God will be our God, whether we are on the mountaintops or in the depths of the sea. And so let's pray and feast with Him.